August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended, and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, it is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. Welcome to the Outlines podcast. Before I start, I'd like to take a moment to do a little housekeeping and tell you all about a few small changes to the show. First, I'd like to say thank you for your patience in waiting for this episode over the past month. It's been a busy time, and unfortunately I just haven't had the hours to complete everything I need to. I'm continuing to work on researching episodes, but until everything settles down, the release schedule is going to be a little sporadic. With that in mind, I'm altering the structure of outlines a little. No longer will I be splitting the show into seasons, though I will still be grouping cases from counties together where possible. This means that there will be no planned gap between county changes, but also that I'm no longer committing to a structured release schedule. Where possible, I'll still be following a bi-monthly format, but each individual episode requires different amounts of legwork, and I'm finding myself struggling not to compromise on quality in order to release regular content. A lot of my research methods are time-intensive, heavy on mileage and local study, and to do justice to these cases, sometimes it just takes longer than two weeks to collect all the information I need. I hope you'll all appreciate my reason for the change and continue to stick with the Outlines podcast. A massive thanks goes out to all my patrons and the new supporters, Bethan and Mark of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast, Brooke Aloha and Amy Stapleton. Your support currently means that Gemma and I don't go hungry as we visit destinations, and I'm hopeful that with growth and time, all of our podcast overheads can be covered. With that in mind, I've finally got around to adding links within the website for Patreon, as well as a PayPal donation button if you want to make a one-time contribution to the show. At the moment, I'm keen to keep Outlines ad-free, and your support will make this possible long-term. So that's it for today's housekeeping. I hope you enjoy the episode and my return to Essex as I cover the murder of Alison Morris. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast.
Between mid-May of 1978 and September of 1979, Ramsey in Essex was to be the stage for three terrible events which shook the small village. In the 2011 census, Ramsey's population was registered at a little over 2,300 residents. Most of those are situated just off of the main street that runs through the middle of the village, before curving around to become Rabness Road, and a few houses, isolated and separate from the rest. Despite the lonely feel, Ramsey sits just next to the A120, the main trunk road to the port of Harwich, just under three miles to the east. If you were to stand on the Rabness Road, as it turns the corner into the main heart of the village, you would see across the ploughed fields to the river, and to the great cranes of Harwich and Felixstowe, a vision that dominates the horizon along the banks of the River Stour. This part of Essex is a land of agriculture and industry, and in May of 1978, the residents of the village experienced a collective sadness when a minibus containing children from the Ramsey Village Primary School, returning home from a weekend in Nottingham, was hit head-on by a lorry in driving rain as they travelled the last 20 miles to their home. Six of the children and their teacher were killed, with another 13 people injured, eight kids and five adults. Reports from the time speak of the villagers of Ramsey's collective shock as they buried the children in a line of small graves. But this was not all that would befall the village, as just ten months later, teenage gunman Paul Howe would try to hijack a cargo ship at Harwich's Navy Yard Wharf before fleeing with a hostage and holding him prisoner for 13 hours in Ramsey's Castle Inn pub. The siege ended when Howe set a fire and attempted to flee the blazing building, wildly shooting at the assembled police before being gunned down in the street outside. Nowadays, the siege is no more than a story and some clippings on the wall of the pub. But just shy of six months later, with that feeling of sadness still blanketing the small village, one more brutal act would occur in Ramsey. This was the murder of Alison Morris. For me, Alison's murder starts with a conversation in a pub at a folk session one Tuesday evening in late July. I'm sitting slightly back from the musicians, chatting to a friend of mine, a true crime fan who just listened to the Essex cases, and she says to me, I'm surprised you didn't cover that woman who was killed in the woods near Rabness. The surprise is mine, because somehow, amidst all my searching, I'd never found mention of a woman killed in that area. This is the problem with starting research online. It's difficult to hit the exact search term required to find those smaller cases. If something hasn't received a lot of up-to-date coverage, there's every chance I can pass it over. And this is what happened here. There are unsolved cases in Essex that I deliberately chose not to cover for one reason or another, but this is not one of those. This one, I just somehow missed. When I started to search for the case online, I soon found out that there was more digitised information about the shootout in the Castle Inn than about Alison's murder, and so I shifted gear and started my hunt for research in the local news archives, specifically those of the Harwich and Manningtree Standard. My first port of call was Colchester, 
but they had nothing useful, and sent me instead to the library in Harwich, where I met a librarian whose name I believe was Kay. Harwich don't keep the information I needed, but Kay remembered the case. She's been a local all her life, and strangely, she shared a front page with Alison in the aftermath of her murder, because Kay had been bottled in the face while celebrating her 18th birthday on a night out in Harwich. She said she'd found the articles from that time quite recently, stored in her attic, and promised to dig them out for me if I had no luck finding the microfilm at my next destination, West Clacton Library in Jaywick. Sometimes, research goes this way. It's difficult to find the location of archives. Counties recognise the need to store the information, but not that people might want to actually access it. Still, the microfilm is there, in Jaywick, in a library within a school, and after spending a little time navigating the overly helpful librarian, I'm finally able to see the information I need and learn more about the murder of Alison Morris. Alison Marion Morris was born on September the 25th, 1953, in the market town of Newcastle-under-Lyme in Staffordshire. Born to parents Joseph and Mavis, who most commonly used her middle name Marion, Alison had a younger sister, born in 1956, who by September the 1st, 1979, the day of the murder, was married and working as a teacher in the county of Surrey. Alison herself had been teaching in Nice for the past year, while she worked towards her PhD from London University. That summer, she'd returned to Ramsey, where her family had lived for the past five years in Rose Lodge, a little house on the small and lonely Rabness Road, separate to the rest of the village. During the summer months, Alison, a regular churchgoer at All Saints Church in nearby Rabness, sang in the choir and in July, she ran a stall at the Rabness Church Garden Party, which was organised by her father. There's a photograph from that day. It's the one you might find if you Google Alison's name. A side profile, shot in black and white, of Alison dressed in a strappy top. She's propping herself up on her elbows, and her eyes are down, but she's smiling. Her features are strong and pre-Raphaelite, with her hair braided around her head. In the background... You can see a sign advertising the game of bowls. Anyone who grew up in a small village recognises this scene. Think of the quintessential Englishness of Midsummer Murders, and you're somewhere near. Reading about Alison's family, you get a sense of a close-knit group. Reverend Eric Heyman, rector of Rabness, described them as a good Christian, wonderful church-going family. Neighbours called Alison homely, and Detective Inspector Gordon Walker told the papers... She seems to have been a very introverted girl, an academic, and did not have many local close friends. Reverend Heyman echoed this sentiment when he said that to his knowledge, she had no boyfriends and no real hobbies. Her career seemed to be her life, and her only other interests were her family and the church. On the Friday evening, the day before Alison's murder, she and her parents had returned from a months-long caravanning holiday in Scotland, and on the day of her murder, Saturday the 1st of September, she decided to take a short walk after dinner 
before returning home in time for the 8.15 film on BBC One. When she left the house, she was dressed in blue jeans, a yellow jumper and flat brown shoes. The footpath on which she met her death is just a few hundred yards from her family's home, down a little lane that leads through Copperus Wood, across the railway line and to the sand and mud that makes up the banks of the River Stour. This was Alison's favourite walk, and I have a couple of Polaroids from that lane. They're taken in mid-September, in early evening when the light is golden as it shifts through the trees and the path glows. It was roughly 6.30pm when Alison left for her walk. She managed to go no more than 300 yards from her family's home, and just 70 yards down the lane when she was attacked from behind. Her assailant repeatedly stabbed her in a vicious manner, though there was no sign of sexual interference or mutilation, and her body was fully clothed. Left dead on the lane, Alison was found at 8.20pm by her father, who had become anxious when she had not returned home from her walk. weeks following Alison's killing, police began to gather evidence and question villagers. One of the officers in charge of the case, Detective Inspector Cliff Stollery, told the papers, Someone somewhere knows the identity of this person. Someone probably local, perhaps a parent or a close relative of the person responsible either knows or strongly suspects that they have committed this offence. It could well be that they came home on Saturday night with blood on their clothing, or that they could have in their possession a knife which they found in the family car or in the home. As you can gather, police never found the murder weapon. Even going so far as to call in two separate societies, the Colchester Metal Detector and Artifact Club and the Ipswich and Suffolk Metal Detecting Club. Between them, they examined the tangle of undergrowth along the length of the path and within reasonable throwing distance either side, and while they did find four separate rusty knives, none of these appeared to be the murder weapon. Despite the widening of the search in the weeks that followed, very little came of appeals by police to trace vehicles and people seen in the area. There was a small light car, perhaps a white Mini, seen at around 7.20pm, or 8, depending on the reports you read. That has never been located. A green Vauxhall Viva estate with a roof rack seen at about 6.30, and a courting couple, embracing some hundred yards away on the rab nest side of Copperus Woods Farm. There is very little in the way of clues or usable information to be found when researching the murder of Alison Morris. You have a woman on an isolated path who no one witnessed between leaving her home and the attack. No murder weapon, Reports of a few cars, but nothing anyone can trace or can't rule out, except perhaps for a white mini. A police incident room was set up in the home of Harwich Magistrate Tommy Bernard, whose house was next to the lane, but it sat empty at the time while it was being redecorated. Back in 1979, one theory was that Tommy Bernard's house was being robbed, and Allison disturbed the burglar at work. There is no evidence or proof of this, though. It's speculation, just like everything else. Another school of thought 
which was looked into back in 1979 and then dismissed, is that Alison's stabbing was the work of the Yorkshire Ripper, serial killer Peter Sutcliffe. The theory goes that Peter, a lorry driver by trade, would have delivered goods to the port at Harwich, passing close to the village of Ramsey as he started his journey home. For me, this feels improbable for a number of reasons. Sutcliffe is known to have murdered 20-year-old social psychology student Barbara Leach in the early hours of Sunday the 2nd of September. It is logistically possible that he could have killed Alison in Ramsey and then driven the five and a half hours to Bradford in time to kill again, but whoever committed this murder would likely have been covered in Alison's blood. Did Sutcliffe have time to change all his clothing and clean his hands and his face and make his way back to Bradford, only to do it all again? It seems unlikely. Of course, there's also the matter of where to park a lorry, a large and noticeable vehicle. If you leave the A120 and head towards Ramsey, the roads are winding and narrow. The entrance to the little lane where Alison was killed has no space to park other than out and exposed on the verge. Witnesses noticed a small white mini, a green Vauxhall Viva, a courting couple. I feel as if they would have seen a lorry, strayed from its route and stopped on the Warren-like back roads. I have another theory. It doesn't have a suspect. It's not based on anything other than location. But the track that Allison had taken forms part of the Essex Way, an 82-mile walking route established in 1972, which runs from Epping to Harwich. Perhaps she met someone hiking the trail, a backpacker with compass and knife. This is pure speculation, but the isolated area was one of the reasons why police seemed so sure that Alison's killer was local. But perhaps he wasn't. Perhaps he was just a man with a map passing through the area who saw a chance and took it. Since starting to research this case, I've driven more than once to visit the grave of Alison Morris. The first time was just before Storm Helene properly hit the region. Gemma, who had a chest infection and I, drove to the small old-fashioned church, which in 1979 was Reverend Eric Heyman's All Saints in Rabness. This is where Alison sang in the choir, where she helped her father organise and run a garden party where she worshipped on a Sunday every time she was home from her studies. As we exit Gemma's van, the winds are high, but the countryside is bathed in golden sunset. To our left are fields, round hay bales and the sweep of land which circles down to the river Stour. Gemma's far too ill to be out hunting for a grave in high winds on a cool September evening, but the two of us do just that. It doesn't take me long to find where Alison was buried, the day was October the 3rd, 1979, 39 years to the day as I write this sentence. She has a traditional headstone, behind the church in the middle of the yard. A news article from the time describes the burial, how the churchyard was overgrown and led straight out to fields and then down to the river Stour. As I stand at Alison's grave, I think of her body committed to the ground and the spray of roses her parents had buried with the coffin. I read the inscription on her headstone. 
in loving memory of Alison Marion Morris, died September the 1st, 1979, aged 25 years. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I know it's time for Gemma and I to go. She's coughing and cold, and the sun is getting lower. But as we leave, I don't quite feel right. I don't feel as if I've done everything I came there to do. But there is nothing else. I stand in front of a grave and say thank you for a life, and then I leave again. It's all I can do when I pay my respects to those whose cases I cover. But there's something about that place. That old church on the hillside with scant company, but for fields and the river. There's something I can't quite get a handle on. I went back at the beginning of this week and stood there again, and I'll probably go a third time. It's the strangest thing. Something about Alison's story has really hit home with me. I think the reason is that unlike so many of the other cases I've covered, right now I can't see how her murder could be solved. I can't see that there would ever be an explanation for her senseless death, and that fills me with a sadness. One that I know will draw me again and again to the All Saints Church at Rabness. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input from Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.